Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, media criticism is at its heart consumer advocacy. But there's an unarticulated underpinning to elite media conversation that as a citizen, you may have rights, but as a consumer, you don't have anything that can be called a right. The market is an arrangement, the best possible arrangement, to be sure. But still, you can only hope that you're on the right side of that arrangement where it's profitable to serve you. And if it isn't, well, that's too bad. It's a kind of human needs fending against profiteering and caveat emptor and devil take the hindmost situation, which would be bad enough if corporate news media didn't present it as though it were unproblematic and as if we'd all agreed to it. Paul Hudson is president of the consumer group Flyers Rights. He'll talk about what you did not, in fact, sign up for in terms of air travel. Also on the show, enacted under Trump, Title 42 instructed officials to turn away asylum seekers at U.S. borders in purported protection of the country's public health in the face of COVID-19. Official speak currently has it that COVID is over so far as public regulations go. Oh, except for that exception about denying hearings to people fleeing violence and persecution in their home countries. The Supreme Court has just furthered this injustice with a ruling that, according to one account, quote, does not overrule the lower court's decision that Title 42 is illegal It merely leaves the measure in place while the legal challenges play out in court, close quote. We'll hear from Melissa Crow, Director of Litigation at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. That's coming up, and we're getting right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. You will likely have seen the images, if you weren't in them yourself, thousands of people stranded in airports, baggage lost, plans foiled. Is this how it has to be? And if not, well, what exactly is in the way? Paul Hudson is president of Flyers Rights, a nonprofit group organizing the consumer rights of airline passengers. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Paul Hudson. Thank you for having me. Well, reasonable folks understand acts of nature, unfair and brutal as they can be. But what were the non-weather-related conditions or circumstances that contributed importantly to the air travel breakdowns that we all saw in late December? Well, air travel has been deteriorating for a long time, really in the last 20 years especially. So we've been in a situation, uh, especially coming out of the pandemic, where I would analogize it to say we're we're in rough air. We had terrible conditions over the summer with delays. We had awful situations uh, during the pandemic with uh, flyers not being given refunds when their flights were canceled. And now in uh, the most recent situation with Southwest, we have the equivalent of a crash landing. 
their software system, no doubt, broke down, but it's been in bad shape for many years. And their personnel simply uh, inadequate to handle the schedule that they have set up. So there's a lot of reforms that need to be done, some short-term and some longer-term. And hopefully this will be a wake-up call that allows the system to get back to where it should be and where, where it really was in, uh, in, say, the 1980s and prior to that. Well, it's not really a reduction, as maybe some folks have seen in media. It's not a reduction to finger-pointing or to he said, she said, to try to trace causes and to call for accountability. There, there were systemic issues and problems that employees and their representatives were on the record, right, as pointing to, as being concerned about. Yes, and these things were ignored. I mean, this is not the first time an airline or Southwest has had computer breakdowns. Delta had some, a number of others had some. The systems are not nearly as robust as they need to be. They need to be fail-safe. If you look at other systems that, um, like the internet, or like the phone system, even like uh, your electrical grid system, if one part of it goes down, it doesn't crash the system. You have backups, and you get what's called graceful degradation. But in the airline business, they have underinvested in a lot of these things. And as a result, we get these brownouts. And the cost of it, the inconvenience of it, is dumped on the public. Well, Associated Press offered an explainer, which, you know, right there in the name, it's supposed to tell folks, you're not inside this system, you don't understand the ins and outs of this system, but here's what you need to know. And in that explainer, AP said, what happened? And their answer was, quote, airlines were prohibited from furloughing employees as a condition of receiving $54 billion in federal pandemic aid from taxpayers. But that didn't stop them from encouraging tens of thousands of workers to quit or take long-term leaves of absence after the pandemic torpedoed travel in 2020, close quote. I'm a little confused by that. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting no one wants to work. I'm sort of getting airlines couldn't keep people in jobs. I, I just, as an explainer of what happened, I'm a little confused by that. Well, the, the intention of the, uh, the, the PPP program and some other uh, bailouts of the airlines, which altogether involved about $90 billion, the intention was that you, you would keep the staff on the payroll so they would be ready when the pandemic ended to restore traffic and they wouldn't have to go from a cold start. But the airlines, unfortunately, are only incidentally in the transportation business. Hmm. They're primarily, and especially their executives, are in the business of making money. And if that meant reducing their payroll through other means that got around the intention of the law, and there was no real oversight by the federal government on, on money, that's what they did. And um, they continued to pay, in some cases, dividends. They paid large uh, bonuses to uh, CEOs and top executives. Some of them also did stock buybacks to keep their stock price up while their profits, of course, were dwindling to nothing. Well, let me just take you on a maybe a side trip there, because when I looked at airline meltdown, everything, 100 percent of the stories were about Southwest. And I wonder if you see 
any danger in making this conversation and making conversations about how to come out of it only about Southwest Airlines per se? Is there a reason to expand the conversation beyond that as though they were outliers or rogues? Definitely there is. The other airlines have all had lesser brownouts and and crashes, not only their computer system, but of their lack of personnel coming out of the pandemic. The reforms that we've been promoting pretty much have been ignored by DOT, which is the only regulator of the airline industry. And as a result, things have gotten worse and worse. For example, you would think there would be some requirement to have a certain level of backup or reserve capacity for personnel as well as equipment, but there is none. There's no requirement, and some airlines actually have negative reserves. So even in the best day, they cancel 1% or 2% of their flights. It's profitable to do that. Another example is that there is no requirement that they maintain any level of customer service. Each airline sets their own goals about that, but there's no enforcement. And they just say, well, I'm sorry. They don't answer their phones. They don't have the personnel to do it in the area that's most crucial, which is pilots. We have a shortage of pilots. Pretty much everyone agrees with that, except perhaps the um, the pilot union that wants to leverage the situation says there is no shortage. But the airlines are simply not recruiting the pilots they need and haven't done so for years, especially for regional airlines. They don't pay them nearly enough. And uh, the proposals that flyers' rights made going back to June of this year, about 17 of them, have pretty much been ignored by DOT, at least until recently. Well, let me ask you to talk about journalism. When we see structural or infrastructural problems that you're pointing to of this order, news media coverage can be unfortunately predictable, really, in terms of You know, just to put it crudely, there's going to be a wave of disaster, human interest, what the heck is happening stories, and then a smaller wave of, well, who's to blame for this stories. And then later, uh, maybe a ripple of serious people analysis. And that often says, you know, golly, everybody's upset, but there's really nothing to blame here. There's nothing to point to. And then we rinse and repeat and we act surprised the next time there's a crisis. I I wonder what did you make, good, bad, or indifferent, of media's reporting on the airline meltdown? Well, it was somewhat predictable. I, I think, though, that the fact that air travel affects such a wide proportion of the population Right. And the media um, are, frankly, uh, doing a lot of air travel in many cases. Yep. And they have, it personally, uh, have, has it affected them. So there was a, a wider coverage than I would have expected. I was interviewed on um, CNBC for six and a half minutes. And as you know, in national television, that's a lot. You're lucky to get you get a one or two minutes. That's that's huge. Well, so that's that's very helpful. Well, uh, we're coming out of an era where the White House was issuing sort of comic book rules like, well, for every new regulation, you have to eliminate two. And regulation is evil. And, you know, that's the way we're meant to understand it. The bar is pretty low. But I don't know. Listeners may remember this country had moments when we could talk about consumer rights, not maybe as robust and 
expansive as some of us would want, but it wasn't a joke. It wasn't a snowflake issue, you know, <laughs> to want companies to make products that were safe and non-toxic and that had consumers, human beings in mind. What do you say about the moment to reinvigorate that consumer perspective? Well, I hope it's, it's, it's going to come back to some degree. We issued a Bill of Rights uh, for airline passengers back in 2014 and 13. And we, we visited 150 congressional offices over the next two or three years. Now, there's, there's 535 members of Congress. We could not find one member who would introduce any substantial legislation, even drop a bill in. And so we're in a, in a, in a total desert situation now. And if you don't have a member of Congress that wants to make not just this, but other consumer issues important and will not introduce legislation, you're just not going to get anywhere. The agencies that are the regulators, they're political at the top. And uh, whether they're controlled by a Democrat or Republican administration, our experience has been over the last 30 years that they're actually controlled by the industry. And the industry pretty much has veto power over any consumer regulation. It's what we call being captured. Do you have any uh, final thoughts for journalists who, many of whom might be starting out new and think they can cover what they want to cover and let the chips fall where they may? What would you encourage journalists to look at or to ignore or to think about or any thoughts for media? Well, I, I would say if I was a journalist starting out or even not starting out experienced in an issue like air transportation, you have to look at all the different sides, and not just go with the, the propaganda or the sound bites or any interest group, because every group you speak to, of course, comes with their own agenda. But even so, there are many facts that can be distilled from these things, and it's not impossible to come up with reasonable policies and come up with a reasonably accurate story in many situations. We've been speaking with Paul Hudson. He's president of Flyers Rights. They're online at flyersrights.org. Paul Hudson, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. The Biden administration is, quote, appealing an order to rescind Title 42, a pandemic policy that has allowed it to quickly expel new migrants. It said it nonetheless planned to lift the policy, close quote. So explained the New York Times in early December, if explaining can mean leaving readers a bit more confused. We subsequently learned that the Supreme Court has halted the order to rescind the policy, leaving it in place while somebody decides whether it's lawful. If you can peer through the language, you'll find Title 42 invoked as a supposed anti-COVID move under Trump as justification for the summary expulsion of asylum seekers in theory, from both Canadian and Mexican borders. Last fall, a district judge declared Title 42 no longer justified. But Republican attorneys general in 19 states opposed that, were denied the ability to intervene on it, and pushed it to the particular weird Supreme Court we have right now. 
once a piece of legislation or policy is deemed not just a partisan football, but an object lesson about the relationship of courts and legislators, you almost despair of news media approaching it in terms of its effects on human beings. What would it mean to put people at the center of the story of migration and immigration. We're joined now by Melissa Crow, Director of Litigation at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Melissa Crow. Thanks so much, Janine. Well, let me ask you for some baseline clarity here. Title 42 was itself an intervention uh, that countermanded existing laws and protocols on Asylum, right? It was always business as unusual. Yes, that's quite right, Janine. The Title 42 policy represents a radical departure by the U.S. government from its decades-long practice of processing asylum seekers at the southern border, which, of course, is required by our domestic and international legal obligations to provide protection to individuals who are fleeing persecution. But over the three years that it's been in place, it has been, to some extent, normalized, particularly as a result of press reports. And as your organization has pointed out, uh, reporters' framing of the policy has really shifted since Trump left office. The framing in many media reports that I read these days suggests that ending Title 42 would be a radical change that would result in a crisis rather than a return to what had been our practice for more than 35 years under both Republican and Democratic administrations. Well, it's interesting because the presentation of rescinding Title 42 as having impacts, you know, it, it, it's not wrong that it would have an impact, you know. Um, it's just the what is the perspective that we consider that impact from? And what I'm seeing a lot from in coverage right now is communities saying, you know, we're going to be the ones who are going to receive migrants and we don't have the support necessarily to take care of them. That, to me, is a different story than that gets funneled into another media frame about how you can't talk about social welfare without demonizing people who who might need it, uh, h- however briefly or in whatever contextual situation. So it's not as though we couldn't talk about impacts. It's just the way they're being talked about. Right. Humanitarian and legal service providers and shelters stand ready to assist migrants yep. who are coming in, but they do need to partner not only with the federal government, but with state and local governments to provide much-needed funding. This talk about a crisis at the border is really, in in my book, a misuse of language. Mm -hmm. We hear words like surge or flood or wave, and that language is really dehumanizing. I mean, it essentially compares people who are seeking protection and safety to natural disasters or military threats. You know, it's something to be feared. And it's xenophobic. And we we can do better than that. We can use language that is more neutral. We can talk about an increase in the number of asylum applications or a rising number of people seeking safety. But we don't need to go to the extremes. We have 
always, well, until three years ago, we have always welcomed asylum seekers at our borders, and there's no reason to stop now. And terms certainly like we even hear invasion at some yes. point, which puts it really in a certain place. Well, it seems as though the mainframe right now in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision is partisanship, how the Supreme Court is being misused by Republicans to enforce or endorse a policy that really is a congressional matter. But then also the Biden White House is trying to have it always, you know, human beings are showing up in coverage in a very secondary way, you know, and as you're describing, sometimes they're described literally as pawns, you know, political pawns, but then they're not engaged in a way that actually challenges that. So what human impacts can we expect from what's being called rather passively as an administrative stay, you know, as though it were a non-action. I read one account that called it a gift of time to think about things. But this ruling by the court is not an absence of action. Real consequences will follow from it. Yes. Absolutely. And just to clarify, the only issue on which the Supreme Court has decided to weigh in is whether those 19 states have the right to intervene Mm -hmm. in this matter. It's kind of ironic because nobody here, neither of the parties really seems to question whether the Title 42 policy continues to be required as a response to COVID-19. It's very clear from the arguments made by the anti-immigrant states that they're viewing Title 42 as a border management tool rather than a public health tool. And they've opposed virtually every other COVID restriction except this one, which relates to asylum seekers. In terms of human impact, The Supreme Court's decision to extend the stay pending their decision will continue to have deadly consequences for people who are fleeing persecution. Every day that the policy remains in effect, vulnerable individuals remain in legal limbo and they're exposed to grave dangers. We've seen reports from Human Rights First and others documenting over 13,000 violent attacks against people expelled to Mexico under the Biden administration alone. And, you know, with this repeated delay of vacating the Title 42 policy, the death toll will only rise. The Biden administration was prepared to end the policy before the holidays and service providers stood ready to welcome asylum seekers at the border. Instead, those asylum seekers are continuing to languish in Mexico and elsewhere in really dire conditions under freezing temperatures and the threat of violence by cartels, smugglers, and the like, with really no end in sight for the foreseeable future. And to the extent that media and reporters talk to those service providers, they get a very different um, perspective on the story. And I have to say, I really resent that the narrow framing means that we can't argue that COVID is still a crisis and at the same time argue that we shouldn't be harming people who seek asylum as some sort of pretense of a of a public health measure. I feel like the media gives us this narrow window in which to have that conversation. Stephen Miller, who, as you know, was the architect of Trump's anti-immigrant agenda, 
wanted to impose a Title 42 type policy long before the COVID pandemic. And when COVID happened in March of 2020, he seized on this opportunity to finally close the border to asylum seekers. Right. But the pandemic was really just a pretext. Exactly. The Title 42 policy was implemented over the objections of leading public health professionals and experts at the CDC. In fact, the director of the CDC's Division of Global Management and Quarantine, who ended up resigning, said explicitly that it's just morally wrong to use a public authority that has never, ever been used in this way. And he said that it was evidence of discrimination. Absolutely. Well, the frame that's so big that it's almost invisible in this coverage is, you know, I keep reading articles about the solution to immigration. You know, immigration and immigrants are a problem. These human beings are first and foremost a problem. And of course, we need reform. And of course, it's a divisive issue. And all of these seem to be kind of accepted tenets of the conversation here. And, and what if we don't buy them? You know, what if we don't accept that immigration is inherently a problem? You know, what, what could the conversation look like if we, if we talked about it in a, in a different way? Yeah, I, I hate to sound trite, but this country is a nation of immigrants and always has been. As you may know, there was a poll conducted not too long ago where nearly three-quarters of Americans agreed that the U.S. should provide asylum to people fleeing persecution or violence in their home country. Conducted by the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at the University of California, San Diego, and it came out in December. It was released with the wel- by the Welcome with Dignity campaign. I think they surveyed 1,000 people across the political spectrum, 80% Democrats, 74 percent independents and 57 percent Republicans express support for asylum. Mm -hmm. So I think that tells a very different story than the characterizations that you shared. And I feel like, you know, people are so quick to label those coming in without really understanding the catalyst that caused them to flee in the first place. We've been speaking with Melissa Crow, Director of Litigation at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. Find their work online at cgrs.uchastings.edu. Melissa Crow, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me, Janine. I appreciate it. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you'd like more information about FAIR or to check out previous shows or transcripts, you can find all of that as well as a way to sign up for our email list at FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.